welcome to the Cinephiliac Lounge. I'm Scott Kilroy. And I'm Pat O'Connell. And today we have a very special guest with us. Hi, I'm Gina. I'm Pat's wife. I'm Scott's friend. <laughs> and today we're talking about Time Bandits. But first... Remember my voice. I do trailers. All kinds of trailers. 73, take two. One day they'll put me in a film, a proper full-length job. Until then, I'm just stuck with this sort of stuff. Go and see this. Don't miss that. The most terrifying thing you ever saw is coming to babysit for you tonight. All right, cut it down. Look, just read what's on the script, will you? What? The script. Other way up. Ah. <clears throat> Ready? Yes, yes. You flock to see brief encounters for the special event. Close. Huh? Close encounters. Close encounters. The film. Oh, I never saw it. Well, forget that film. We're on about our film. Time Bandits. The word. Time Bandits. The one you are supposed to be promoting. Remember? <coughs> you flock to see close encounters for the special effects. You went to Superman to see a man fly. You went to Star Wars for the droids. You went... Now what? What's page two, man? It's under page one. See? Oh, man. You went to Star Wars for the droids. Time bandits can offer you much, much more. It's not the special effects or flying men or droids which makes time bandits a unique cinematique. Cinematic! You know, pertaining to the cinema. Cinematic experience, it's the makeup. Yes, folks, you've never seen anything like it. Men made up to look like monsters. Monsters made up to look like men. Look alike men made up to look different. Different men made up to look alike. No expense has been paired, spared on the pan stick, the pan stick. No expense has been spared flying in the world's greatest makeup man. Just a minute, just a minute. What about the plot? The what? The plot. What the film is about. Well, I haven't seen it, have I? Haven't seen it? You're sitting there telling millions of people to go and see a film you haven't even seen? Well, I can't see every film I do now, can I? Oh, wonderful. Terrific. Look, give me that. What are you doing? Taking over. You're out. O-U-T. Finished. Kaput. Finito. What about the trailer? I'll do it. Time Bandits is an awfully good film. We have worked ever so hard on it. It's a tremendous adventure story. We like it, and we're pretty sure you will. <laughs> What's wrong with it? It's direct, punchy, honest. Honest. <laughs> honest. Honest. What's that got to do with that? Before we begin, Scott, do you want to give a short synopsis of the film? And warning, there will be spoilers ahead. Sure. Time Bandits, written by Monty Python alums Terry Gilliam and Michael Palin, directed by Terry Gilliam, and backed by former Beatle George Harrison. It tells the story of an 11-year-old British boy, Kevin, who has neglectful parents and a vivid imagination. One evening, a knight on horseback comes charging out of his bedroom wardrobe. The following night, six dwarves fall out of the wardrobe and take him on an adventure involving stealing various items throughout history. The adventurers slash thieves come across the likes of Napoleon, Robin Hood, 
and Agamemnon, amongst others. Eventually, the group has a confrontation with the devil, meets a very British god, and possibly saves the universe from ruin, or do they? Additionally, there is the possibility that the entire adventure was nothing more than the imaginings of an 11-year-old boy. Time Bandage stars Sean Connery, John Cleese, Shelley Duvall, Ralph Richardson, Catherine Hellman, Ian Holm, Michael Palin, Peter Vaughn, and David Warner. The Time Bandits themselves were David Rappaport, Kenny Baker, Malcolm Dixon, Mike Edmonds, Jack Purvis, Tiny Ross, and Kevin, played by Craig Warnock. The tagline for the movie is, All the dreams you've ever had, not just the good ones. Before we get into the movie, Scott, what are you drinking tonight? Tonight, I am drinking Evan Williams' 1783 Small Batch, hmm. and it's not bad. It's 90 proof, no age statement, but thought to be six to eight years old. It's just been re-released, a redesigned bottle, and they bumped the proof up from 86 to 90. And I'll give you a little uh, nose and taste and finish. On the nose, I get oak, vanilla, and light leather. It's very subtle, though. It's not, it's, this is not a strong bourbon. This is very, very weak. On the palate, more oak and vanilla and some brown sugar. But again, it's very light. Can I just say, every time I listen to you guys' episodes, anytime you review what you're drinking, you sell me the product so good. I swear to God, there was one thing that you were drinking that you're like, oh yeah, it tastes like chocolate chip cookies or, or something. <laughs> and I was like, I got to get that one. I don't even drink bourbon, but it was just so convincing. And you make it seem like you're having such a good time drinking it. And I'm well, all about beverages. So I just want to say that to you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, we, we do enjoy what we're doing and we... You know, we love movies and we love drinking and we put the two together and look at this. Well, you just sold me on whatever you're drinking, so. All right. All right. Pat, what are you drinking? Okay. Well, I came across this and it's drinking Legend, which is a, it's a Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey, but it's partially finished in wine and sherry casks and it's. It's described as East meets West because Suntory Whiskey, I guess, bought Jim Beam or they worked with the Jim Beam. So this is the creation between the Kentucky bourbon master distiller Fred No and the blended and refined chief blender uh, Shinji Fukuyo. And it is 94 proof. It also doesn't have an age on it, but um, I, I was just very, I've never had. Japanese whiskey? Have you? I have. I've had Hibiki, and I've had a few others. They're so, usually pretty good. Okay. Uh, uh, so I really have no frame of reference, but I decided to do this anyway and try. And I just want to say that both Gina and myself are using the wonderful gift you gave us of the Glen. How do you pronounce the glasses? Glen Cairn. Glen Cairn. Glen Cairn. Uh, glasses which are really cool oh so. they're so cool they're like the best yeah oh i'm um, glad you like them thank you so i'm gonna go i'm looking at so looking at the color i'd say it's a, it's it's an amber color 
I'm going to go for the nose. I'm getting, it's very alcoholic, but I am getting vanilla notes. I go for the palate. It's very oaky. It hits you pretty hard. It's very, it, it, it doesn't ruin it, but it is very alcoholic. But it is, I get oak, but it does have a, a, a medium bodied finish. It's nice and spicy. I'm going to, I'm going to take a little bit more here. Wait, you said that's a Japanese whiskey? Hmm. No, I, I oh. said that this is a blend. It's a the uh, someone from Jim Beam worked with someone oh, from Suntory Whiskey, oh. but I was saying that I'd never tried Japanese whiskey. Mm. Scott has, so I have no frame of reference in that respect. But I decided to try this anyway. Is Suntory good, Scott? Did you ever have Suntory? Oh yeah, Suntory makes a lot of good whiskeys. Um, the one I've got, Virginia gave me a, a Habiki for Christmas, Ooh. and it's. Soup, it, and it's it's kind of considered mid shelf in Japan, mm -hmm. but I think it's excellent. I put I would put it up there with any scotch. Oh wow! I tried what Pat is drinking, and it it was a little bit too rubbing alcoholy for me. I don't know. It was just a little bit too okay strong. It it is. There's a, there is a strong vanilla taste to it. I was like, oh my god, it tastes like what I'm drinking, but. Well, I don't know. <laughs> let's talk about what you are drinking. Today. Yeah, well, what are I'm, you drinking? I'm drinking Hennessy, which it says, according to the bottle, is a very special cognac. It's 200 milliliters and 40 percent proof alcohol. <laughs> this is what I used to drink when I would um, go to Christmas parties with Pat at Pat's side of the family, and well, I also like drinking it in the winter time too. Okay. It gets me drunk. That's why, <laughs> that's why I'm not a big drinker. So I'm like, hmm, what can I do that won't make me throw up? If I did tequila, I would start throwing I like tequila, but I, I would throw up. This, I feel like I'm going to throw up, but I think I have a couple. I have like an hour and a half in, in me before I so, before I throw up. So, Scott, do you know, would, would you approach talking about cognac like you do whiskey? Do you have any idea? I guess. I You know, I have to admit, I have one experience with cognac and I did not like it. But really? I, well, I was at a wedding and you know how you're at a wedding and sometimes you're like, I'll try something new. Yeah. And I got cognac and I think it was pretty bottom shelf cognac. And uh. I was, and I was like, I don't think I like this, but I don't know. I'd like to try something good. Like you're, you're trying Hennessy. Yeah. I mean, it's for, for, for me, I feel like it's very smooth and, um, how would you describe the color? The color is an amber, very warm amber. The smell. Still the nose. Ugh. The smell just tastes like mm. it smells like lighter fluid, but I mean, it's smooth. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Not lighter fluid with a hint of vanilla. Can I be very honest? Sure. If I drink, I want to drink on an empty stomach. I want to feel as loaded as possible. <laughs> and <laughs> that's what alcohol is for me. I'm a very social drinker. Okay. So I'm being social right now, which means I want to be as loaded as pot. Like I'm shotgunning this like ASAP. <laughs> Take it. We, we got we got like an hour and a half to go. So you might want to... Yeah, I'm gonna pass out. By the way, then I, then I'll probably pass out. But... Well, Gina didn't say this at all, oh. but I'm saying that she chose this oh. for the Napoleon sequence of Time Bandits. That's why she chose the cognac. 
Oh, was he drinking cognac when he was? No, it's the cognac is French. Oh, oh, it is. Well, that's what cognac is a kind of brandy right. named after cognac. But... Okay, thanks, Pat. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Pendantic. <laughs> Moving right along. I'm never gonna be asked back to this show, that's for sure. No, it's oh. it'll be fine. You'll be you'll be like me at the end of the Outlaw Josie Wales one. Where I was like I heard you on that one. That was amazing. I was like, Scott is so drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Which is how it should be. I was like, Pat, how do you guys so what's the show? You guys drink and you talk about movies? Like, how are you both like not inebriated? And like slurring oh, yeah. words towards the end. Like, I think that's amazing, by the way. So that one, I got a little out of hand. I kept your, <laughs> I just, when I should have drank water, I was drinking liquor. And by the end of it, I was like, yeah, this is another thing I love about the movies. <laughs> not, not good. Anyway, that's well, awesome. Before, before, to continue, uh, wanted to say that we chose Time Bandits initially, the thought, was that Time Bandits had its 40th anniversary in November of 2021. We wanted to do this a little bit sooner, but with the holidays, we're we're getting to it now. Uh, and also, as to end, to go in full circle, like a Terry Gilliam film, we started with a Terry Gilliam film, started in, where we spoke about in 12 Monkeys, our first episode, and we referenced Time Bandits, and now we're doing Time Bandits. Yeah. What were you drinking while you watched the film? Well, I I was lucky in that there's a little bit of story here. My friend Liz, for my birthday, gave me a bottle of Monkey Shoulder, which I've reviewed on a previous podcast. Twelve I monkeys. remember that, yeah. Yep, Twelve Monkeys. I talked about Monkey Shoulder. Mm -hmm. And she just called, she just sent me a text message saying, go to this address. There's a package for you. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm getting into a drug deal. Uh, <laughs> and the address was a liquor store. And I walked in and I told them my name. And the, and the guy from behind the counter went, oh, from Chicago. And gave me a bag and said, this is for you. And Liz is from Chicago. So that makes sense. Oh. And it was a big, big ass bottle of monkey shoulder. Wow. Wow. So I've been just drinking that from my birthday on. I, I, <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, so that was nice. So I was drinking that through the movie. Nice. How about you guys? What were you drinking? Uh, I I had a green tea. I was like really, I was like in a bad <laughs> mood. I'm, I'm going to be very honest. I fell asleep through half the movie, woke up, was in a horrible mood. And then like Wayland was watching it and he kept on playing with his Legos and yeah, so green tea. That's what I was drinking. Okay. I I finished off my bullet rye bourbon for the first time I watched it. And then the second time I watched it, I just had some yellowtail Merlot wine. Okay. I'm also drinking seltzer and diet Pepsi. I hope I'm not cheating. That's... And Patsy yelling at me every time I put the bottle down. So I'm doing it quietly now. Okay. Where did you see this movie first, Scott? I saw this movie at the Surfside Cinemas in Rockaway Ooh. when I was 11 years old, exactly the same age as the protagonist in the movie. So awesome. I totally lined up with this movie. Basically, the story was movies were babysitting for my mo mother. 
And she would drop me off like Saturday and be like, I don't care what you see. It could be R rated. Just get <laughs> out of the house. I need two hours to myself. <laughs> um, and so I would go and see whatever they were showing and they were showing time bandits and I was blown away by it. I was just like, <laughs> I walked out of there. You know what? It was the way probably a lot of kids walked out of like E.T. or something mm -hmm. where I walked out of it going, this is the greatest experience of my life. Wow. <laughs> awesome. Wow, I'm jealous. Gina, when was the first time you saw Time Bandit? I could have sworn I was. Okay, so here's the deal. I remember watching it on television. So I, I did have HBO when I was younger. It was like when HBO first came out. So I remember watching it, I don't know, maybe I was like seven or eight and I would always watch it in the mornings, <clears throat> like on the weekends, I remember, and it would be on like at seven o'clock in the morning. And I would always get up really early on a Saturday to eat little Debbie snacks because my parents would still be asleep. So I'd eat these zebra cakes, if you remember. And yep. for some reason, Time Bandits was always on the television and I'd watch it and it would always make me lose my appetite because the movie just sickened me so much. Oh I hated it so much, but I watched it all the time as a kid. So that's okay. my first introduction to Time Bandits. <laughs> Pat, how about you? I saw this movie in the same theater I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was the RKO Keith in Flushing which was this gorgeous, gorgeous theater on Main Street. They closed it in, I think, 1986. And they finally, I think, it, they still had a marquee and it sat empty for, I think, 30 years. They finally destroyed it, I believe. But in any case, I figured out that I, I saw Time Bandits at the RKO Keith that same year because I remember when we went, because they had three, three theaters at the RKO Keith. And they still had Raiders. So we got, normally my father would get us to a theater just roughly as it started. Sometimes he got us there late. The most famous one, which upset me, is he got me to Empire Strikes Back late. And I didn't oh. see the very beginning of that movie for oh, a couple of years. But in any case, we got there actually early for once. And my father happened to peek in and he's like, he's like hey, hey, Pat. They're about to show the truck sequence. You want to see the truck sequence? We have like 15 minutes before we have to go into Time Bandits. I'm like, oh, yeah. So we went in, we watched the whole truck sequence, and then I went in to see Time Bandits. So it was it was an awesome day for me. I got to see the truck sequence from Raiders, and then I saw Time Bandits. And I was, I think I was about roughly Waylon's age. I was like nine nine or ten where i saw when i saw it and i also i i totally dug it i was i was loving it i'm a little surprised by gina's response because i i think it's just it it seems like a movie written by a little kid really because i it's funny as a as a child and I was watching it as an adult and it was just making me like angry for some reason. But as a child, I remember feeling so maybe scared and not safe. And then as adult watching it, I was like, Oh, I could totally see because even I like when he's not to jump forward or anything, but like 
I feel like anytime the main character, Kevin, feel is in a situation where he feels safe, he's taken out of it and like thrown into a new situation. And I think that's what was making what you made me upset as a kid. And then as an adult, like it was making me very anxious. And at the end of the movie, our son was watching it with us. He's eight years old. And I kept on looking at him like, are you okay? Are you okay? Like, is this making you like lose your appetite or anything? Like I'm asking him all these <laughs> questions, like how I felt. And he's like, no, no, no. But like, I could tell, like it made him feel weird as well. So yeah, I had the total opposite reaction that you guys felt. I was like, no way. Like, but I watched it all the time. That's like the weirdest thing, which I okay. was like that as a kid. I would always watch stuff that I hated. <laughs> I kind of actually, you know what? I do that now as an adult. I watch everything stuff that I don't like. It's the ex Catholic in me. Like, it's that weirdo, like, hmm. I don't know about the ex part. But... I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that, and I was going to talk about this a little bit later Waylon's reactions, which I, I want to talk about at certain points. He, he did enjoy it. So, and also, I want to say that Terry Gilliam had something to say about parents and their fear about frightening their children. And I, I watched the film by myself, then I watched it with with, with Gina and Waylon because I wanted both their perspective. And then I watched it on my own. I watched the I own the Criterion collection set of it, so I. I watched the film with the audio commentary and the audio commentary on it is fantastic because it, it had everyone, every major player speaks on it. David Warner, Craig Warnock. Unfortunately, the time bandits themselves don't or are, are, are not on it, but that's because unfortunately most of them have passed on. Oh, David Rappaport actually passed away at 38. He took his own life. Oh, um, um, Ooh, he played. He David Rappaport plays. Guy, right? No, no, no. no. David Rappaport oh. plays the 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 leader. Even though oh, they the even bandits. though they had the joke of we we agreed no leaders and he's like that's right so shut up and do what I say he's the he's the, David Rappaport plays Randall the oh. leader. Which by the way, Rand, I know I brought this up with Pat, but I was watching it and the entire movie with Randall, I was like, Oh my God. I'm like, I have to rewatch that Frankenstein movie with sting because the, the big guy is in it with like Jennifer Beale. Did you ever see that? I saw it years ago. Do I don't remember, remember it? it. Oh my God. That was another movie that made me sick. Like it was just so not sick, but it was, like, yeah. it was just so, like, I hated sting in it. I was like, why is sting in this movie? Like, it was just like making me angry. Yeah, David, <laughs> I had forgotten that David Rappaport was in He's that. He's so good. David Rappaport. He's very too. good. He's so good. Yeah. But unfortunately he was just in these movies that got yeah. a violent response from me. Yeah. <laughs> I'd agree with you. Anything with Sting, like Dune or... Yes! I can't yes, think of much exactly. else. I felt the same thing with Dune as well, which I always... there Another movie I was always watching as a young kid. Yeah, that's so funny. It's... Yeah, he's not good. <laughs> yeah, there's something about him that's just like, oh, yeah. No offense. By the way, I want to make a disclaimer. I am not a film critic. I'm just voicing how I... My feelings, how like how I felt when I watched these movies. I feel like when I when I watch films, you know, or films in general should evoke some kind of feeling. It's 
not going to be correct. It's not going to be educational. Uh, no, that, <laughs> hopefully that... it's somewhat entertaining uh, and also a therapy session, free therapy session for me too. Uh, well, the, the <laughs> motto of, of the, our, our show is we're a couple of guys who like to drink and talk about movies. Oh, okay. So we don't. Yeah. Um, okay. I don't think we ever claimed that we had any insight. Oh, no. good. Okay. That's the other thing. We're not professionals like, oh, or have inside. All right. Because so far, professional all amateurs. Of... Okay, good. Okay. Well, then you know what? I'm. I. I feel you're fine. Way more you're... comfortable now. So I wanted to tell you just how you were talking about well and Aspen, who's 21, who's an oh, adult, watched the movie with me. We actually had a fun weekend this weekend. Cool. Aww. He came home. He was supposed to work, and that fell through. And so we just spent the weekend watching movies. Virginia and Alex are out in Florida right now. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're they're freezing because it's in the 50s there. Oh, my <laughs> God. That is freezing. Holy crap. For Florida, yeah. Yeah. So, so we just watched movies. And Aspen actually said at the end of Time Bandits, if I had seen this as a little kid, it would have freaked me the hell out. Okay, thank you, Aspen. Will you please tell Aspen how I felt as a child as well? So, thank you. See, it seals the deal. <laughs> it's it's a little grisly at points. It I mean, is. It's scary. It doesn't make me... I don't know. I, I had to think with not feeling safe a lot as a child and even as an adult. So, maybe it's just something within me. But the whole movie, I'll, I'll repeat it again. It's just like being taken out of these situations... And then, you know, especially with the Sean Connery scene, too, I remember being really angry when I was young, be like, oh, well, he, Sean Connery, whatever character he is, like really liked him. And then, you know, they're taking him out of this. But I also wrote in my notes that Sean Connery's character's wife would probably have killed him. So, yeah. <laughs> but I'm jumping around. I'm I apologize. Go ahead. No, it's okay. It happens. Okay. It happens. Hmm. I recorded Gina and Whalen's mostly Whalen's like reaction to the film as soon as it ended like I just turned around and (laughs) he liked it and he said he didn't understand the ending and Gina was concerned about what she said about frightening him and my response was something that's close to as uh, and I'll bring it up later what Terry Gilliam says you know fairy tales it's like grim fairy tales actual fairy tales which this film is they're not nice. The fairy tales, you know, of uh, they they have witches that are trying to eat children. Uh, Red Riding Hood, the grandmother is eaten by a wolf, and then he's pretending to be the grandmother. If you were to depict most fairy tales, children's storybook fairy tales, in a realistic manner, they would be horrifying. But I loved grim fairy tales. I love horrible things like that. But this movie just... Watching it as an adult, I didn't really evoke that kind of, am I using the right term? Is it? Sure. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, strong of an emotion. But I love those kind of fairy tales. This in general, I don't know. It, just, it seems like you and Scott really liked it as a young child and as children. But like, I don't know. For me, I just didn't really, I really wasn't into it. And watching it as an adult, I was just like, oh, well, I don't know. Uh, I, I think... Well, one, I, w- I would like to point out that when you and say I, lo- I-, I love Terry Gilliam, by the way, I'm not trying to shit all over Terry. I'm not I don't want to 
I, I really like his movies, his other movies. This one particularly, I just, I really just, I think I just don't, I just don't get it. I think there's like, you know, maybe you guys <clears throat> like it more or relate to it more. I wanted to go to, to address the point that you brought up about you like those fairy tales. Mm -hmm. Well, you've never seen Terry Gilliam do Little Red Riding Hood. You've never, <laughs> you, or the, what's the, what's the one with the, um, with the gingerbread house and the witch that wants to throw the kids oh, in the oven. Really Hansel and Gretel. Hansel and Gretel. Like, Hansel and Gretel, yeah. If you were to do Hansel and Gretel, but do yeah. it realistically, you would be even more horrified. <laughs> I think what the the disconnect is okay. that you like horrifying stories if they're the written word with spot illustrations, you're more disturbed when you actually see it. And that's, I think the problem with you might have with time because time band certainly has horrifying things or elements or sequences that could be more horrifying to a younger kid. And it certainly has fucked up shit in it. I think it was, and I'm so sorry, Scott, I, I don't want to be. It's all right. Much. I think it's because he's taken away from his parents. And that was always a fear of mine, even though, I didn't have really good parents. <laughs> um, I don't know. It was always like, oh, like a fear that that would happen. And uh, I think that's why I just oh, didn't like this but, movie. That's, I think that's what it is. But you're projecting your experience yeah. to the story. One of my favorite things about the film is how they establish Kevin and his parents. And that relationship is key to the entire film, in oh, my opinion. Yeah, no, when yeah. you first when see adult, when yeah. you first see Kevin and his parents, <laughs> his parents are facing us mm -hmm. and we're they're looking at the TV screen and we are essentially the audience is the TV screen and they're watching in, in, intently. And you see Kevin, and when the first time you see Kevin, his back is turned to the TV and he is reading. So he has his the the parents are watching because they are shallow materialistic and dumb yeah oh absolutely they're watching this show your money or your life it starts off with that ad for what becomes to be the most wonderful thing in the universe which is hilarious to me and it has the ad for the moderna wonder major all automatic convenience centerette and it's all about this amazing kitchen and they say one of the themes for time bandits is gives you all the time in the world to do the things you really want to do and, and it's ironic because the parents are, are really like into this, but like the mom says, Oh, the Morrisons have one that can do that in eight seconds. They turn a block of ice into beef bourguignon in eight seconds. Lucky things. That's what they consider important things, mm -hmm. right? The parents. And so they're watching this horrible TV show, mm -hmm. Your Money, Your Life, and it has um, what Jim oh, Broadbent. I knew he looked familiar. Jim Broadbent as yeah. the, the the host of this Your Money, Your Life, which is essentially this program where people are just completely humiliated and hurt <laughs> to try to win money. When they're like, just think, it's, 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 when they're telling the old lady, like, oh, Ethel or whatever her name is, like, just name a, name a famous actor whose name starts with C. And then they have the husband whose leg is in a cast because he's <laughs> already gotten his leg broken on this stupid fucking show. And they're about to dip him into custard <laughs> and drown him in custard. And the parents are sitting there in their fucking furniture that's wrapped in plastic, which is very important. And I'll bring that up later. They're wrapped in plastic. and but But when you see this thing, so... They're so concerned about it, and they're so. And the father's reading some magazine, uh, no newspaper, uh, on appliances. They're very gadget obsessed. Appliances and things matter. And 
Kevin has his back to it all, the materialistic shit and what's going on, and his parents, his back to his parents, and he's reading, and he's talking about, hey, Dad, did you notice, you know, in ancient Greece, you know, they, they studied 44 ways to kill a man, and the father's response, and they look at him, is like, well, we have a two-speed grass cutter, and you're like, hedge cutter, and you're like, what the hell? So, uh, I, I go through this long-winded way of saying, Kevin really has nothing in, in, in common with his in parents. In fact, the movie is... Part of the movie is really Kevin trying to find a real father figure, which he yeah. finds in King Agamemnon, who is the only the only adult who's not an idiot and an asshole because all the adults are stupid. And that's yeah, but, why children like it, because the, well, who, the, the Kevin is a child, but he's more intelligent, literate, imaginative and smarter, way smarter and a better person than his parents. And he's the reason why the time bandits take him on and take him away from, you know, Mycenae mm. and Greece is because he's smarter than they are and they need him. He's smarter than all the adults. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he reads and he's literate. And when they went up and like, where are we? He's like, oh, we're in medieval times. They're trying to figure out by looking at the map, but he already knows. I know. I just felt bad for that character though, because he's always being. Well, but uh, remember when he's in Greece and he says, I would like to stay. Can I stay? And he's like, won't you miss your friends or your, your uh, parents? He's like, no, mm-hmm. he straight up says, I don't give a fuck. He's willing to leave. He doesn't care about his yeah, parents. That's, and I was like, Oh, that's great. And then the time bandits come again and like take him away from the only place that made him happy. And I remember being very angry. I well, was sorry. angry when I saw that. Well, Genos would fairy tales teach you life is pain. <laughs> Life is pain. You know what it is? I'm going to say it again. It's just I never felt safe. So I think watching this movie, to me, I interpret it as like, oh, you're not, he's not safe. He's not secure. There's no one in charge of him. And there again, not to like jump to the end. The end is very like ambiguous and weird and terrifying to see did aspen think the end was just absolutely terrifying yes i know he's <laughs> I know he's 21 but seriously it's like what and everyone's like okay bye and then like sean connery is like giving him a wink like oh you were really lucky you didn't die and then like he's like bye like, <laughs> like no one's like helping him i'm like someone help him no i well i want to i want to just say just up front the the whole when he leaves Sean Connery and the look of Sean Connery's face when he stands up after he realizes, holy Ugh. shit, they're gone. Yeah, like he like he's the first to realize this this isn't like a magic act. These fuckers stole my kid from me. Yeah, and it's heart it's gut wrenching. It it's is. just horrible. Thank you. I had- to turn away from, I had to like turn my brain off and be like I'm tired again because I was going to cry like I was just like oh boy like I just knew like he was just like we're having the celebration you're my son and blah 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 but and and yes the wife was probably going to try to poison him <laughs> and there was anyway. horrible <laughs> shit going on there but I just felt like God I just wanted him to be happy you know yes I felt that way too Pat Pat doesn't uh, like Pat. Well, yes, yes, but 
That's that's where I say I mean, Scott, but I'm pointing to Pat because Pat's just like, no, it's a great movie. The kids great, the kids happy, the kids, you know, the whatever. One of the things I like about the film mm-hmm. is the foreshadowing. You're shown or you're giving clues as to what you're going to experience throughout the entire film at the very beginning of the film. Okay. Kevin's room has everything, everything in Kevin's room winds up being part of you wind up being part of that adventure so one it it shows you what he's interested in but everything in his room uh is a foreshadowing of what you're going to see like when his parents the the father has a a watch because they love their fucking gadgets the useless gadgets it's like the alarm goes off he's like time for time for bed kevin and (laughs) he's reading and he goes upstairs and since his parents are shallow materialists who would they'd never read a a a fucking book ever and he he goes up he goes to his room and he's reading his you know big book of greek you know greek heroes and trying not to get in trouble if if you look you see in the background he first is there in his bed there is a large painting portrait of napoleon and then when they cut to the the wardrobe to the left of that, mm-hmm. there is a miniature stage and proscenium. Just like when they go to Napoleon, he's watching the Punch and Judy show oh. at the stage and proscenium, and the knight on the horse bursts through the 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 wardrobe cabinet, mm-hmm. and he's freaked out. By the way, on the commentary, it's very interesting. It took them mm-hmm. weeks to train a horse. Because a, hor- a horse won't doesn't you know as Terry Gilliam says on the commentary since they're smart they don't like leaping into something they can't see and they had to train they had to go down this hallway and then have him leap through and they had to make a wardrobe that was large enough for an actual horse to jump through so it took them Crazy. weeks to train and set up to do that one shot and that <sighs> shot actually was the spark the inspiration for the film the the it, Terry Gilliam came up with the concept for this film because he was upset that he could not get Brazil off the ground. He couldn't get people interested in Brazil. He's like, you know what? Fuck uh, it. I'm going to do something for the entire fucking family. And he's like, I'm going to do, and he had this thing. He's like, I'm going to do something with a kid. And he had this, the spark of the inspiration was having this, this, this night burst through this kid's wardrobe, like Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe, and like other fairy tales happen. And then it evolved for him where he said, okay, I want to do something from a child's perspective. Mm-hmm. in a child's view and then he said well i can't have just one kid mm-hmm. so he came up with the idea of having the dwarves that would be the same size that could help him carry this entire film through and then he wound up bringing michael palin into it michael palin oh. admits that the initial concept and about 60 to 70 percent of the, the the screenplay is gilliam and then uh, the other 30 percent is is palin he Palin helped with dialogue and characters and mm-hmm. and and stuff like that, but oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, but also going back to where I was talking about Kevin's room gives you gives you the clues to what you're going to see. Not only establishes it reinforces the the, the notion that Kevin because he you know he does have a he does have a bionic man cutout near his. His light post, and he does have. I I picked up. He does have a few de. He has you know regular toys and Legos or whatever, and he has some decals of Superman. But most of it is either drawings by himself or cutouts from 
coloring books or or magazines of the period that he's obsessed with. So when he prepares, he prepares the night after he sees the night burst through and he gets in trouble and he's like, what the hell was that next day? He is eating with his parents. By the way, did you notice that the mother, I guess she was a British pink lady because she only wears pink. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I did sort of notice that. That is really funny. I like it when she was a showgirl too, towards the end <laughs> yeah. when they're doing that mirage of like, Oh, hi. Like she's so, so yeah, they have this weird <laughs> dinner where they have they're talking about shit and they're eating out of these like weird tin plates, or whatever. You don't even know what they're eating, but they're having I he's like having dinner. He's like uh, TV dinner yeah. or something. Yeah. And he, he wants to go to bed early and he and he, he he grabs that sweet, sweet fucking vintage Polaroid camera we talked oh, about. Oh yeah. The, do you remember those, Scott? The, the oh yeah. Pop up. Yeah. Those we were sure. a big deal. They were. My grandfather used to collect um, cameras, and he literally had like ten of those. And anytime we we went to like a, a garage sale, my grandpa Joe, he would just like if he like he couldn't help himself, he'd be like, oh yeah, sure. Like he would just like pick them up, and I have none of them. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I got something when he passed. But... I don't know where they are now, but yeah, those are so cool. So he grabs the Polaroid and he grabs a flashlight and is, you know, he's like, dad, is dad, you know, my food went down. I'd like to go up to bed. And he's like, all right, whatever. And you see them on their plastic chairs watching your money, your life again. He goes upstairs and he's waiting for something to happen. And just before he kind of falls off and before the wardrobe shakes again and the time bandits come out, he flashes his flashlight on the floor of his bedroom and there you see everything that you're going to see in the end battle scene. You see the chessboard. You see Legos. You see knights on horses. You see cowboys. You see a rocket ship. You see a tank. Like at the very the, within the ten minutes of the film, you don't realize it, but you're seeing the end of the film. Wow! On its floor. And they repeat that image once they go through. Once he go through everything and they go to the end fight scene at the, the uh, fortress of ultimate darkness. And they have that last stand down where there's a tank and a rocket ship. And I, I told Gina, I hadn't realized I've seen this movie countless times, loved it for whatever reason, this time around, I noticed that when August turned into, he, he gets the pig head because evil yep. zaps him with that weird there's a lot of freaky shit in this in this movie i i will admit but i do like it the, the movie is very cartoony it the movie is very much like the animation that terry gilliam did for monty python mm. that makes sense in, in the robin hood sequence john cleese's hat is fucking ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. So Robin Hood's hat is really—it's very cartoony. And uh, here's another freaky part that reminded me of the Monty Python, his Monty Python animation and Python humor. When they go to the time of legends, which is toward the end of the film, and you realize that they're in the in the boat, and you realize that the boat is actually the hat of this this giant. And he rises from the sea and he's lumbering. Then they have a shot of a miniature house and they have like this, I don't know what the fuck they are. There's like 
anteater elephant kind of weird creatures and like they're talking non English like they're talking some cartoony weird shit and they're like they're obviously arguing but you don't know what they're talking about and and I remember Gina being very disturbed by it (laughs) because the baby was crying baby's crying and he's like he stepped on the house and Waylon's like oh they're dead I'm like oh they sure are this movie's fucking terrible (laughs) but it's very it's it's very, it's very Monty Python. I mean, I, I think, I think in the opening credits for Monty Python, don't they have a foot yeah. that crunches? Like, yeah, that part was totally. I actually have in my notes. <laughs> I remember when I watched this movie as a little kid, that the giant with the ship with the ship hat freaked me the hell out. <laughs> Just freaked me out so much. It's a ship. I understand that. I understand what a ship is. All of a sudden, it's a giant walking with the hat on. <sighs> that It just really messed with my head. That's uh, hilarious. I, I liked that part as a kid. I was like, oh, I did finally I, a part where I feel comfortable in this movie. I thought, I thought that was pretty damn, pretty damn cool. I, I, I want to say, adding to my point of everything in, in Kevin's room foreshadows what you're going to see. On the wall, that side of his room that the time bandits eventually figure out you can push when they're trying to escape from the supreme being. When they push okay. down the long hallway. He has all this, all these papers and either drawings of by him and other stuff on there. And he has the French Hussar soldiers that you see in the Napoleonic sequence, the first s- sequence then with Napoleon. You see those soldiers, you see the, the knight on the horse the same night on the horse that crashed through his wardrobe the night before is, uh, is is a drawing on the wall. But also I noticed there is a drawing of a ship that looks almost precisely like the ship on the giant towards the end of the film is on his wall. Really? I didn't yeah. catch that at all. I did not catch that at all. So, uh, so there's a lot of foreshadowing, a lot of cool shit th- that I dug. But with some of the things that you liked, Scott... I really loved the whole moments with Sean Connery. I, oh, yeah. To me, I love the fact that the movie slowed down for a little bit. And they were just like, we're going to hang out for a little bit. And it's really funny because um, you think of Sean Connery as, as James Bond. And he's like this really cool guy. But he really worked as a dad. Like he, you could see that he loved this kid, Mm -hmm. even though they didn't have a ton of time together. There was definitely something there. You know, there was a bond. And like I said earlier, it's just gut wrenching when he gets pulled away from that. Yes. I felt the same way. Yeah. If there was any, you know, and this is pretty typical of Terry Gilliam, if there's any justice in the world, if there's any goodness in the world, <laughs> he would have been left there. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> he he would have been left there and he would have been happy and he would have grown up to be king and everything would have worked out for him. I am not I am I am not by any means an expert in Greek mythology whatsoever, but I I, I did doing research for this film i did come across something one i remembered i thought agamemnon in the iliad and some other stories not exactly in in actual greek text what you would consider a nice guy Hmm. and 
somebody pointed out, I guess something in within actual Greek mythology, something bad happens to him. So someone said, well, oh. if he had stayed with him, it really wouldn't have worked out for him anyway. Okay. 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 That makes sense. This reminds me of something that I thought was extremely interesting. All the stuff with history, you know, they're playing with history uh, in some some respects. But the reason Michael Palin contributed, Michael Palin, apparently, he got a degree in history. He said that this film was the first time he actually got to use it. Wow. Oh, wow. crazy. Starting with the the first sequence of when they fall through, they're, they're being chased by the supreme being, and they're pushing the wall, and they all fall through a time hole for the first time and they land during the Napoleonic Wars, the Battle of Castiglione. One, the sequence, them, when you see Ian Holm, who is fantastic in this He's film, so good as Napoleon, yeah. As Napoleon. He's really just sublime. He's He nails it. And there's a lot of, Ian Holm was brought up, and Terry Gilliam admits that he really first came aware of Ian Holm because of Alien. And Alien Alien does have a lot of influence on this film in, in some bizarre ways. The headgear for the for David Warner is the evil genius, or the personification of evil. His headgear is completely, Terry Gilliam admits, they, they completely and utterly were influenced by Alien. Really? Yeah. Because I was watching it thinking that. I know, yeah, I know, me too. And Pat's like, oh, it's funny you said that because he admitted that. And I'm like, oh. That's hilarious. I, because I was like, totally like, this looks like a Geiger thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's it, what he's going for, yeah. Especially when he opens up the head and he cuts off the, the, the cowboys are attacking oh, him. yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, that's so creepy. Like, it's just really <laughs> disturbing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it totally. He says it's like the skull with the tubing and then having the hands. I think it was either Gina or Waylon. Waylon, by the way, just for for our anyone who is listening to this, I have we have not let our son watch Alien. Oh, my God. Oh, my all. God. I hope not. We have not let him watch Alien. <laughs> but because I have a lot of stuff, because I'm obsessed with so Alien, he knows it. so much about yeah. it, but he's never watched it. I, I think it was either Gina or Waylon who's like, Oh, it looks like a it looks like a face hugger. No, I said it, <laughs> and then he it was like, "Oh yeah, it does." And I'm like, "So." Terry Gilliam took it a point further, and he's like, "He's like, oh, if you look at it, it, the evil genius costume for the headgear and around him is slimy." And he's like, "Oh, we were totally influenced by Alien. I wanted to do the, hmm. the Alien." He's like, "Well, with the 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 KY jelly and dripping goop everywhere." Hmm. So uh. if you look at it, it's totally that way. But he later, David Warner admits that when he arrived at set, and they they just had a basic costume, and there was no pre, there was no preconceived sketch for evil. Hmm. Terry Gilliam just was like, oh come here. He said we went into like this garage, or whatever, and Terry Gilliam just started picking up shit and be like, what if we do this? What if we do this? I just kind of like cobbled it together, like on the fly. Wow. His Good. henchmen. The two, the guys that are like wrapped in plastic, it was very like 12 monkeys to me. Or am I being crazy? No, no I, I could see okay. that. Yeah, no, definitely. Okay. Like that, you know, in 12 monkeys, when Bruce Willis is in like 
the pods or, you know, when he's like in his jail, whatever it is, it's like the jail. Yeah, Everyone's they're... like in that weird plastic. Or yeah, the like... scientists are yeah. wrapped in plastic. And when they send him out, yeah. send him out to collect samples, he's yeah. in this whole uh, plastic. It's what made me feel that way. For, <laughs> for this film, it's, I had remarked before that the parents' house that they have their furniture wrapped in plastic. I, and yeah, you know, I can't throw from, from my background, can't throw uh, stones through glass uh, houses. Uh, I've, I've been in plenty, my, my own grandparents had their furniture wrapped in plastic. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, depending on where you were uh, in Brooklyn or certain parts uh, at a certain time, seventies or eighties, if you went to someone else's house, their stuff was wrapped in plastic too. So but it, for the purpose of this film, Terry Gilliam said that he, you know, he thinks that's ridiculous. And he, for him, the, the parents wrapping the, the furniture in plastic is because they're trying to preserve things and so much about the religion of materialism. So they wrap that stuff in plastic. And so he, he thought it was a metaphor for everything that was wrong with modern society. And so that that's why he felt the minions of evil itself would also be wrapped in plastic. Uh. Oh, oh, interesting. That was very really interesting. Huh. I didn't know that. That's great. He's so smart. I mean spirited, I, I know, and, and Terry Gilliam and I, I, I share his perspective on things very much personally. So that's why this film resonates with me the way it does. But there was a sequence when I was watching it with my wife and my child, Gina and Waylon, there was a sequence where they were both absolutely silent. And I was laughing like, like fucking <laughs> Robert part? De Niro in, in fucking Cape <laughs> Fear. <laughs> my Cape Fear laugh. What part? There's a sequence during the, the Robin Hood sequence where, it, uh, where, oh, where John yeah. Cleese comes out and he has, as I said before, the ridiculously cartoonish, like, long hat he's like, oh jolly good yes and he's acting like the the you know the duke of edinburgh and he's shaking like footballers hands before a match he's like oh what, how long have you been in rubber oh yes my favorite there's a lot of funny lines in this movie it's, it's a black comedy it's a lot this movie's a lot of things it's a fairy tale it's a cautionary tale about technology it's it's a lot of things but the dark the dark humor in it really uh really resonates with me uh, there's there's a line there's a couple of lines i love we're talking about the robin hood sequence where he asks i think og he's like how long have you uh, have you been a robin he's like four foot one he's like oh four foot one that's quite a long time and and he but the thing that really made me crack up was when he decides you know they realize that robin is gonna just take all their shit like they just robbed napoleon they went through all this shit and they they, they got all this stuff wrapped in a tapestry and Robin Hood's like, Oh yeah, well, you know, thank you. He's going to just, he's going to jack them for all the shit that they just jacked Napoleon for. Right. <laughs> and they're like, no, no, no. He's like, Oh yeah, the, the poor, you know, they, they're good people. They don't, have, they don't have two pennies to rub together because they're poor, but you know, they're going to enjoy this. And as he's giving them, giving them, you know, whatever the, the, the goblets, whatever they give him stuff. He has that one oh, that guy, one dude who's, that one dude uh... who, who, who he starts talking when he first sees him, the the dude uh, Derek O'Connor, right actor, he's been in tons of films, but he, 
here he he plays the robber leader. He's the one that when the time bandits are caught in that trap and they're hanging upside down, he he talks to to Randall and he's he's talking regular English and he's like, oh, you rob the teeth out of a you know poor woman's mouth. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But once they get in front of Robin Hood, he completely devolves where he's not talking. He's just he's not actually speaking English. And the uh, there's this other character that has to uh, like translate for him, which yeah. is, by the way, because uh, <laughs> and that was totally with most good films and most good directors. They they, they will take the they will listen to an actor's ideas. And if they think it's good, they'll go with it. That was totally Derek. He had lines for that entire scene. He decided that it would be funnier for him to not actually talk <laughs> English and just talk gibberish and have the, the other character, the third Robert played by Declan Mulholland translate for him. By the way, Declan Mulholland is, he's the heavy set guy that looks like he has like the plague face or whatever he there's a lot of, because this was shot in England there's a lot of people in here that have that were in Star Wars most at least half of the time bandits were in in so you know Kenny Baker was R2D2 Jack Purvis was a Jawa in Star Wars he was the chief Ognaught in Empire Strikes Back and he was Tebow the the Ewok in Return Jedi so a lot of these guys were all in Star Wars and Declan Mulholland he actually was Jabba the Hutt initially in Star Wars, A New Hope. Really? They, yeah. The, so there's there's cut sequences where you can see him and he's talking hot and he pretty much has the exact same outfit. Maybe the exact same outfit, but I'm going off on a tangent here. The, the, so the, what scene the sequence that, that you I, laughed that, that Cape Fear laugh? Cape Fear laugh is when they're handing people, they're handing people whatever it is and Derek O'Connor, every time they hand us them, he fucking just... <laughs> poor... Fucking medieval, like poor person in the face, and everything. And I'm howling. Like, Gina and Waylon, silent crickets. Like, they do not think that shit's funny. I am laughing my fucking ass off. And because I'm an asshole, when they get to the, I think it's an old, at least in my head, the old woman, and he hands yep. her whatever a plate with her, and, De and fucking Derek O'Connor just punches her again. I couldn't even take it. I thought it was fucking hilarious. <laughs> but. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. It just it just fills in with the total, the complete message of the movie of you can't trust your heroes. <laughs> oh, that's good. It's it's just true. Like Robin Hood's an asshole. Mm -hmm. um, he's a total <laughs> he's a total jackass. Who, like, quite frankly, the rest of them should turn on. Mm -hmm. And beat the hell out of him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the the other thing that cracks me up is he goes through all this. And he's like, he's like, thank you, thank you very, 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 very much. Thank you very, very much. And they go and he goes, what awful people that. Killed me. <laughs> I fucking love that. So Michael Palin was initially supposed to be Robin Hood, and then the producers, which is. George Harrison, because Handmade Films is was was George Harrison's company, right? And his manager, they they're like, give us John Cleese, and so that's why Michael Palin wrote this character of him with Pansy. He came up with that. Because I I was gonna bring that up because 
even watching it like when I was younger and even watching it as an adult, sometimes I have a hard time with like watching films that I'm like, oh yeah, this is, this is fun. This is great. And then like something dark will happen or something weird will happen. And I don't know how to interpret it. And I was going to ask you how you guys feel about it. But I feel like anytime Michael Palin was on, was in this uh, scene with uh, Shelley Duvall, like, I was like, oh, yeah, this is, it's fun again, right? It's fun. And then, like, it always, like, takes, like, a weirdo turn where it's, like. No, it's um, horrible. Okay, good. I thought it was just me. I have a hard time with movies in general that do that. I don't know. Well. One, I thought it was funny because you see them on the Titanic as well, and they're different yeah. people, but the same people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're doomed to be the same <laughs> losers of time, right? Yeah. But for me, it shows you have to remember Kevin is the Kevin is really like the only good person in this entire film yeah. because the time bandits, they're not really good. Like when they're not, they're not. Yeah. Their whole, you know, the whole concept is. They worked for the supreme being, mm -hmm. and they worked on trees and other stuff. And they got tired, and they, and they had a map of all the holes. And it, because the universe, I think at some point Terry Hume says that what he liked about his concept was that his idea was that the universe and God is imperfect. Mm -hmm. Not what it's cracked up. So the the concept of the movie is that this this map has these holes throughout the universe, and Kevin's the one that's like you you could do so much good. And here you are, you are creations of God. Mm -hmm. And your idea is let's let's use it to fucking rip people off and get rich. Right. Because right. the, the, the time bandits, they're not good people either. And the sequence when you first see Pansy and uh, I forget Michael Palin's character, yeah. and they're tied to the tree. Oh, yeah. They keep on getting robbed. First they, yeah. They keep, <laughs> and they go past them. It would not have cost them anything yeah. to just cut the rope. But they could right. give two fucks. <laughs> yeah. They don't care. They're not good people. They are like they may be they're they're neophyte robbers, but they don't care. Maybe that's why I didn't like the the film too. I I felt like no one was likable. There was no one I mean, the Kevin was likable, but I just felt sorry for him because I just felt like, oh great, now he's by himself at the end of the movie. The end. But I think that's uh, why too. But he was by himself no matter what. That what, is true. what, did, what, no, you're what right. did his parents ever do for him? Nothing. They were, it was probably for the best that they, you know, touched they, the evil rock when he said not to, to touch the evil rock. Yes, because in this movie, uh, in this movie, and this is why it resonates with kids of a certain age. Yeah. In this movie, adults are stupid. Right. The kids are the ones that are smart. And yeah. also, you know, there's a very, there's this movie's anti a lot of things. It's anti consumerism, yeah. anti materialism, uh, anti authoritarian, authoritarian, excuse me, I'm totally fucking that up. Drinking <laughs> my legend. I just, uh, you know, maybe if I drink more, I'll. Have uh... a bottle of over there. Scott, what do you think? I think it's really interesting because the, one of the things I wanted to bring up was just, and I don't know how Terry Gilliam and Michael Palin, how they came up with the end sequence where it was just, oh my God, we've got evil we gotta, we've got to fight against. I'm going to drag in all the action figures. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm going to drag in the <laughs> Spaceman, 
the guys from Greece. The cowboys. You know, cowboys. The, yeah. I just love that part of the movie because I was just like, this <laughs> is the way I would think as a little kid playing with my toys. Mm-hmm. Like, I'd be like, all right, evil's here. We're going to attack him with everything. Yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. I don't understand how an adult could come up with that. Yeah, I know. Actually, I I don't either. I I feel that you know Terry Terry Gilliam is a cartoonist and worked with Monty Python. I, he's obviously very in, t- in tune and in touch with the child side of him and and imagination. Imagination is is a theme in many of his films. In fact. Give me a second. I have a note here about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Didn't he say, I overheard you watching the behind the scenes and Terry Gilliam was like, this is my Wizard of Oz. I want it to be Wizard of Oz. And in a weird way, I was I, I was like in the kitchen and I overheard that. And I'm like, oh, OK. Well, no. That, that Wizard of Oz to me is very fucked up. And I'm like, oh, yeah, OK. It's, so it's, it's like a mishmash of like fucked up stuff. Yeah. So. Well. So the Wizard of Oz of the 80s was was the tagline. This film was released in 1981, but yes. they re-released the film in 1982. So the uh, poster tagline okay. for the re-release of the film that was yeah. the, the Wizard of Oz of the 80s is back. Okay. Weird. That makes a lot huh. of sense. The Wizard of Oz freaked me out. As a, no, it didn't freak me out. Actually, I really liked the Wizard of Oz. But I didn't like the beginning. She, yeah. She was not to get into Wizard of Oz. I think I just have issues from childhood. I'm like, <laughs> she poor Dorothy was like, you know, taken away from her home, even though fairy- she was, you know, like, even though she kind of lived in this weird fairy home. tales are not nice. I know, I know, I know, I know. I know. They're not nice. Uh, but uh, going back to you know, Scott had said that um, at the beginning the tagline was all the dreams you've ever had and not just the good ones. But the other tagline for the original release of the poster was they didn't make history they stole it mm. huh hmm. so those are the three taglines okay i like the wizard of oz tagline that's pretty good you would like to re-release one <laughs> <laughs> can i just say something i i looked up um for for some reason re-watching this film maybe remember something wicked this way comes and that was released in 1983 that was another movie that i would watch all the time when it was on tv i did not watch these movies in the movie theater so i just remember really feeling like weird and icky watching that movie and that was another movie that i i watched a lot and then I rewatched it as an adult. I think we rewatched it like six years ago or something. We're like, this movie's nuts. Because <laughs> then I later, it was, I think it's like a Ray Bradbury. It's based on a Ray Bradbury yeah. book, right? Yes. And I read the book too when I was uh, younger. So you liked up fucked up stories. I don't I know think why, I what's do. your problem I think this. I'm like, I'm complaining about them, but obviously that's the only stuff I expose myself to. So I guess I'm just a masochist or sadist no i you know there it's funny this ties into something so uh, one of the other extras on the criterion disc of this film is there's a conversation between a a film historian or critic and terry gilliam and he was i forget what he was norway or something Mm -hmm. some somewhere and 
they had a discussion and he he said something along the lines of give me a second I have a note about it just oh, give me a second Jesus I take notes on everything I know it's like a bible over here the one thing I want to mention was um <laughs> watching this in the present age when the evil character which I think is kind of interesting that they never refer to they refer to God as God, but they never refer to the evil character as the devil. Yeah. The movie dances around with with giving general speaking in generalities for the most part. So for the most for the most part, he's not God is not called God, he's called the supreme being. Right. And the devil's not called the devil, he's called evil genius or evil. Right. Then who, I'm sorry, then who are the time bandits? Are they angels to God? You, you because could, they're, they're running they, away they, from him, though. They're, they're, they're running away from, well, they're obviously created by him. They, they say they, they, they say that he, that the supreme being is, was their former employer. Okay. But he obviously created them like he created, yeah. and, and they were creating trees and stuff like that. Oh. But they got bored with where they were stuck and oh, and that's okay, why Randall stole the map so they could go on this adventure. Okay. But, but the thing the thing I wanted to mention was when the devil's talking about computers and everything, these guys totally realized Mark Zuckerberg before he became <gasps> who yes. he was. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I noticed that too. Yeah, they're to totally bringing up computers and um all that stuff. I noticed that too. Well, yes. That's this, awesome. The movie clearly states through the characters and that the speech that evil has about technology is pretty amazing. And it ties into pretty much a main concern or point or theme of the film. It, the film is, is very much it's anti-materialistic, anti-consumerism. And it's also, uh, you would, you, one could argue anti-technology yeah it is because isn't doesn't the supreme being be like i have to know about these computers i'll learn about computers or something or... No, no no oh okay sorry my bad the supreme being at one point says if i if i step away too long they'll think i'll leave it all to evolution oh uh, okay what a british god concept though <laughs> he's he's basically a school teacher <laughs> Terry Gilliam said something that I thought was very important and I agree with and I think we all could agree with he says films that give you nightmares are probably the films that make a great and an important impression on you huh I agree I totally agree with that when I when I saw Alien the first time I didn't see it in the theater my father I remember we were on the deuce. We were on 42nd Street. We were coming from, I think, Flushing or something. We got out of 42nd Street and we were walking along and he was like, oh, and we, it was on the fucking deuce. And there was a poster to Alien and my dad's like, let's go see this. And I was like, no. Oh my my dad tried to get me to watch, to go. I, How old were you when he tried to get you to watch seven, that? Seven, nine, 80. So I was like Waylon's age. Oh my, oh my god. god. Oh my god. I, I saw I saw like a snippet of that movie and I was like, so "Oh I, my god." I watched Alien. I felt so sick to my stomach. Yeah. I watched Alien <laughs> maybe 2 years late. I was still like this is like this is be before or a little after 
83. So I was maybe 11. And oh, wow. I went to visit my aunt and she was friends with, with yeah. that Merchant Marine and they had a house and he had the um, RCA Select Division, which was a precursor to laser discs. Hmm. It was video disc. And he had Alien and we watched Alien. And I watched Alien. Oh, and I was so scared I was fighting from throwing yes. up and shitting. I know. I felt like I was going to throw up. Because also, they thought it was funny. They turned off all the lights <laughs> oh, in the apartment and put on Alien. That movie is so and scary. And I was so... We left because he lived on the floor beneath my, my aunt. And we left there and we had to go up a, a flight or two flights of stairs. Oh. And... Of course, in true fashion, the the light on the floor for some reason was like flickering, yeah. and I was like, "Oh my god, we're gonna be fucking attacked by a fucking <laughs> alien!" Oh, god. So gross. <laughs> I was I was sweating. I was Ugh. all exits, no waiting. I was so fucking scared. Now that movie scared the fucking bejesus out of me. Yeah. I love that movie it's, with all of my heart now. Yeah, interesting. So, the shit that scares you the most is usually the shit you're obsessed with when you're older. Oh, my God. Scott, was there any movie that you wanted to vomit? Or do Pat and I just vomit like when we watch movies? Is it just us? Wow. No. I. No, it's really funny. Um, Not a lot of movies had that reaction. Did you find what you're looking for, Patrick? What were you even looking for? Do you I remember? was looking. Uh, yes, it was about. Okay. I stopped talking because I was looking for the speech that evil gives about technology. Oh, okay. Because I had a point about it. By the way, I do remember as a little kid watching this movie, and when evil says with disdain, "nipples on men," and <laughs> I was like, "What?" Yeah. <laughs> David Warner's speech about technology and how it fits in with the overall message i feel one of the themes of the film where his speech is why have i let the supreme being keep me here in the fortress of ultimate darkness i let him keep me here in order to lull him into a false sense of security when i have the map i will be free and the world will be different because i have understanding and his minions like oh what he's like of digital watches and soon i shall have understanding of video cassette recorders and card telephones and when i have understanding of them i shall have understanding of computers and when i have understanding of them i shall be the supreme being god isn't interested in technology he knows nothing of the potential of the microchip or the silicon revolution so he states he i feel that this speech he says god doesn't care about technology because it's not it doesn't come from god Evil is evil is interested in technology. Hmm. Oh, and therefore the technology That's where I was getting mixed up. He was the You could is 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 evil or or as Terry Gilliam says in in the commentary at the end of the film evil takes control of the tank and the rocket ship and they're like how oh, are you doing this? And he's like you silly little man because I control them. So when evil controls technology, that's it, technology is evil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's it's definitely and the fact that God has no interest in it. If God has no interest in it, then you're equating, then you're saying that the technology is not necessarily a good thing, especially depending on who is wielding it. And I think that's one of the themes of the film. 
Yeah, definitely. I, I would totally agree with that. But I want to talk about if, if a couple other things, the behind the scenes anecdotes, what could have happened, that kind of, sort of things I've come across. So one of the things talking about imagination, how Terry Gilliam often deals with that. He considers that Time Bandits is the first part of his dreamer or imagination trilogy, where Time Bandits represents childhood, Brazil represents adulthood, and the adventures of Baron Munchausen represents old age. And they all deal with the same kind of themes and imaginations at the center of it. That's interesting. That's very interesting. I have to I, admit, I've never seen Baron Munchausen. Me neither. Me neither. You haven't seen it? Yeah. No. I, I, I remember um, when it came out. I just, I never got a chance to see that. I've seen it. Yeah. I haven't seen it for quite some time. I've seen yeah. it a number of times. Watching it, watching Time Bandits with Waylon, I was like, the next thing we're watching is Baron Munchausen. I remember watching the trailer like, that's like scary. <laughs> it's not. No, it's, Time, Band, Time Bandits is, is scarier. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Then I'll watch it. Yeah. I really liked Baron Munchausen. And so his first attempt at Don Quixote, he was going to use the same actor he used from Baron Munchausen. Anyways. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there was a couple of things I wanted to bring up, which I thought was interesting. The, the could have beens. So Jonathan Price was initially what he wanted for evil. Uh-huh. So good. I love Jonathan Price. But... He was offered, he was signed to do this movie, which I haven't seen, some sort of British heist film called Loophole, which Terry Gilliam said he was offered real money because they didn't have a whole lot of money, even though the the movie has $5 million. We talked about this. When you think about it, they had to pay Sean Connery. They had to pay a lot of big, they didn't have, this movie did a lot with a very little budget. Yeah. Yeah. A $5 million budget, it doesn't look like that on the screen. Yeah. So... He won down on price. He lost him. Then he got, you know, David David Warner signed up. And I, I always love David Warner. I think he's great. So I think he's great in this. The other thing I thought was pretty awesome, Gilliam, he wanted Catherine Hellman to be in it as the ogre's wife. Oh, yeah. That was interesting. And the studio, yeah. they think she... Like, no, she's not, a, she's, not a, she's, she's not a big enough star. She was huge because of soap. And he said, yeah. you know, the, the, the studios were like, no, no, she's not a big enough name. And they wanted Ruth Gordon. So they signed Ruth Gordon. Hmm. But apparently she broke her leg. And he says in the commentary in one of the Clint Eastwood orangutan movies, it, it has to be that she hurt herself on Any Which Way You Can, the sequel, because that came out uh, in 1980. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So she hurt her, she broke her leg or her, and so he was able to get Catherine Hellman. And he said the irony was that because she had been on soap, when they, the driver who brought her in from the airport to meet everything, he said they were surrounded by people. It's like, so they thought she wasn't a big enough star, but everyone in Britain was like, oh my God, it's the Catherine, the woman from soap. So, so that's what could have been. Huh. So David Warner is great in the film and, and he, plays the personification of evil. He's the evil genius. But in the sequence when the Time Bandits, after they, they're they on the Titanic, which has a great line of, bring a small champagne with plenty of ice, and then they hit the iceberg for the Titanic, and the evil genius has been orchestrating, much like the evil witch in... Oh, in, in The Wizard of in Oz. The Wizard of Oz oh is using her powers. She using her powers of mind control with mm-hmm. Og to tell them the most magnificent thing in the universe is here, and they go to it. 
and they go through that maze and they go and the most magnificent thing in the universe is the Moderna <laughs> <laughs> convenience center act yeah, from because, the first yeah. ad, yeah. which is hilarious. And they're all like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Because essentially the time bandits are materialists just like yes. Kevin's parents. And Kevin's not brought in. And then you re- they give him the map and he's like, oh, and now he's, you, you see that his parents are actually his minions. And he the set, he goes up the, that stairs. That is not David Warner because it had to be a body double because apparently Warner suffers from severe vertigo and he would never be able to go up those stairs. Oh, really? Interesting. That's great, Pat. Well, I know. Oh, <laughs> when we were talking about the very, the very British God or whatever, Terry Gillum goes on about how he wanted to do Ralph Richardson, but Ralph Richardson was such a big deal such a british royalty of of film and he had to he had to go to his house and pretty much interview be interviewed by ralph richardson to be in time bandits and he's like and terry gillum tells this very funny story about how he's plying him he keeps giving him gin tonic after gin and tonic to try and he's like well, i don't have to do this and he's like i see that i believe that god should wear a a, a, a white linen suit and 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 he's hmm. it was very he was very obsessed with what he would wear to be God and Terry Gilliam, he's like, uh, he did what he could to like keep his composure, drinking all these gin and tonics. And then he's like, well, we'll we'll talk about the suit later. And he, he wound up convincing him. He passed the test by Ralph Richardson. And at some point he came in to talk to him to about this suit again, this, this Panama hat and this linen suit, summer suit that he wanted to wear as God. And he was wearing the suit that he's wearing in the film. And Terry Gilliam's like, no, wear this suit and do that. But he said that Ralph Richardson was very funny because he changed a bunch of his lines. He had his script, he crossed out in in red ink and underlined and he and he changed and every time he would say, he's like, we have to talk about this. He said, God wouldn't say this. <laughs> and Terry Gill was like, oh, okay, God wouldn't say that because you would know what God would say. So it's very funny. And, you know, <laughs> How very British of him. How very British of him. Like, God, God wouldn't say that. God would not say that. And at the end of the movie, I didn't. I never realized all the times that I watched this film that there are two times in this film where there's the very Greek way of ending or solving a problem of a story where the Duce Machina, where someone literally descends from the gods to a battle or whatever, and fixes the problem. So it happens twice in the film. Uh, Kevin goes through the wrong time hole, which turns out that it was probably that the evil genius did it to try to get Kevin out of the way because Kevin was the smartest of the bunch and he wanted the the time bandits to bring him the map. But he falls on King Agamemnon. He literally falls, descends from the sky and saves King Agamemnon from being killed by the the Minotaur and he's able to defeat him because of that. And then the end of the film they have this whole battle and evil is winning. He's And evil's winning and Fidget Kenny Baker gets killed with the pillar falling on him and everyone's upset and it looks like evil's gonna win and the supreme being shows up uh, Duce Machina and turns him into to this this stone or, or ash figure and it was ralph richardson's idea to make them pick up the pieces and put them to make a british mailbox be the the receptacle that they put the pieces of evil in oh that's funny 
And so if you look at it, it looks very rushed because it was, because Ralph Richards said, I think that they should be putting it in this. And Terry Gilliam comments that he he felt that working on this film, everyone brought their own experiences from childhood. He's like, Mm-hmm. about this story about childhood and childhood imagination and he it was his idea that perhaps Ralph Richardson used that or had a toy about that and that's what his idea was for a receptacle to put all the pieces of evil should be in a British mailbox <laughs> I guess that works sure all right should we uh should we Talk wrap about... it up Sh- sure I wanted to before we do so I wanted to tell you that I came across that there was almost a sequel to this film. Really? Hmm. Yeah. So Terry Gilliam and Charles McEwen, who is a writer who worked with him and co-wrote the screenplays for Brazil, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, and The Imaginary of Dr. Parnassus, they wrote a script for Time Bandits 2 in 1996, and they planned to bring back the original cast, except for David Rappaport and Tiny Ross, who had since died. But then Jack Purvis died the following year and the sequel is shelved. And I spent most of today trying to figure, I was like, what the hell could this sequel be? And the, the ending is very controversial for everyone, obviously, because his parents die. And I'm like, what would the sequel be to Time Bandits? And Ralph Richardson says, I mean, this movie shows that religion and faith, it, play, it talks about religion and faith because God and evil, God is not, not not only is he not perfect, because he has fucking holes from what he did and and he never repaired it, but he also Kevin calls him on. He's like, So you created evil and you let all these people die just so you could test your creation. He's like, Oh, you're very smart. Mm-hmm. So he questioned God, right? Mm-hmm. So he yeah. questions God. And because some people when I read about it, like, what did what did Kevin do that he should be punished? And in my opinion, that's it. Because God is not a nice guy in this. Nobody's a nice guy. Not even God. Because God, yeah. he says, oh, you didn't steal the, the map. I let you borrow it because I wanted you to do this. And so he, he admits that it was his plan for the time bandits to take the map because he wanted to test his creation of evil. Yeah, he's like, I, I gave it to you. He's right. Like, no, no, but I then he it. says, he's like, can we have your job? He's like, sure. But you're going to get docked 90% of your pay to the beginning of time. And now you're going to be demoted to only working on shrubs. So he punishes them. Yeah. He punishes the time bandits, even though he admits that they didn't do it. Mm-hmm. It was all his plan. But yeah. yet he punishes them. Yeah. So why wouldn't he punish Kevin, who dared to question, say, like, you did this yeah. and you allowed people to die just so you could test your creation? And I think that's part of it for me. Mm-hmm. Because he dared to question the god, so he has to be punished. But then he also, Ralph Richardson, as as the supreme being, says something like, "When they're like, oh, what about him? Because he has, he's he's about to leave him. He's like, oh, well, he has to stay on to carry the fight." When I learned there was going to be a sequel in my head, I'm like, "Okay, well, Kevin oh, has the Kevin. beginnings yeah. of a superhero. Mm-hmm. All superheroes, Bruce Wayne and whatever, they have their parents killed, they have tragedy, and then they become a superhero." So uh, in my head, I'm like, "Okay, for the sequel, you would have that." Kevin either joins the military because he's an orphan and be, and he's jacked up and he's kind of like Buffy. He's like, I'm ready to fight evil again. But that's not, I found out today that the seek what the sequel is supposed to be about, the sequel is the plot's about saving the world from God's wrath on the millennium. God had bottled out of the first, uh, on the first thousand years because he was going to destroy the place. It was a disaster. Now the year 2000, he's finally going to do it. 
Actually, God is a total schizophrenic at this point. He's got a devil hand puppet that he talks to all the time. This was before South Park and the school teacher character with his puppet. And they were going to be new time bandits, the daughters of the old guys who have worked their way up through the creation departments and are finally getting equal pay as women. It's a really good tale. That's what Terry Gilliam said. So that was, wow. was, was going to be oh my God. the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> If you think the first movie would be a hard sell, <laughs> but listen, this movie is going to Taika Waititi is supposedly supposed to be turning in this into a series with him writing and directing the at least the first episode. But you know, I think we as a society are just pulling him too far. <laughs> He's just involved in too many projects. He's just way too successful and too cool for words. He needs to be stopped. He's too talented. Like, come on. All right. So wrap up with there's lots of themes in this film, which we discussed already. Anti-materialism, anti-consumerism. There's a whole sub theme about magic. What for whatever reason, when he goes to Greece and, and is with King Agamemnon, it's all about magic. Because when Kevin asks him to teach him how to kill people. He's like, I'll teach you something better. And he just shows him a magic trick. Yeah. And then the escape oh, yeah. is purportedly all a magic yeah. trick. Anti-technology. Tech and technology doesn't really work it, throughout this movie. The movie is anti-adult, anti-authoritarian. But let's go to round things up. Let's talk about the critical and box office reception. This movie... Uh, gets a 7 out of 10 rating on IMDb and it's certified fresh with 90% on the tomato meter and 77% audience score. So that shows that critics like it more than civilians. That's surprising. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say this, Scott. I, I looked really hard. I was hoping for something really delicious from Rex Reed. Uh -huh. And what I found was, was a review totally panning the one film I do not like, there's only one movie I did not enjoy by Terry Gilliam, and that was The Brothers Grimm. Have uh, you seen that? I have not seen that. Yeah, but he doesn't like that either because he said he was trying to get his name taken off as the director because there was this whole thing that I was actually really looking forward to that movie, but there was a lot of craziness behind it and when i read about it he doesn't even want his name to be connected to that movie but he couldn't get his name, name taken off of that he did not have like final cut or it, that movie was basically taken away from him and like cut totally the way he didn't want it to be edited and whatnot and he was forced to cast people in it that he didn't want to cast um monica bellucci he didn't want monica bellucci he wanted samantha uh morton his whole whole drama behind it and keith ledger passed away and all that stuff so he doesn't even like that movie i'm, well, pre I'm pretty sure i remember reading about that well it's the one we have a running thing gina about rex reed and how oh uh, uh, so i remember rex reed <laughs> so we wanted to I, I wanted to let you know that he panned this movie, and for once, oh. I agreed with him. But in that, oh. he he discussed that Time Bandits, he felt, was a highlight. And he brought up that Time Bandits was very good. So Rex Reed actually Weird. liked Time Bandits. 
Interesting. I am shocked and, and appalled. Yes. So am I. <laughs> God I, damn I, you, I, Rex Reed. <laughs> yeah, I was like, all right, I guess he deserves that vintage kimono. <laughs> All right, should we talk about what we're going to do next time? Oh, sure. I um, Wrap it up. All right, hold on. Jeez, oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I got distracted. I wanted to say, uh, I just wanted to bring up something with, with, to end on two things, one from Gilliam and one from Waylon, because I thought it was it's funny, if that's okay. Yeah. All right, just to wrap up on final thoughts, I just want to say that you know Michael Kalin thought that the theme of the film was the film is about celebrating a child's imagination and where it could take you and the fact that it should be encouraged because if you suppress the imagination, you end up like the parents sitting there in plastic sheeting watching someone else do something on television. And to your point, we were talking about being afraid about if this is too frightening. Terry Gilliam, who, by the way, I looked up because I was I was wondering, I was like, does he have children? He does. He has three children. Oh. And he had a kid when he did this film. And I, I thought that was very important to know. Yeah. And he and he had to fight for the ending that he had because like, you can't do this. You, you're killing the parents. Yeah. Like, and the, so the producer's like, no. And he fought tooth and nail. Oh and one, he they showed it to they showed it to kids and the boys, uh, they thought it was great. They thought it was great and they liked it. And and he said that the, the little girls didn't and the girls said they were concerned because they didn't know it's like well who's going to take care of kevin See, but the little boys didn't care they're like they thought it was great hmm. but terry gilliam had this to say about the ending he fought for this is my big problem about kids movies grim's fairy tales served us all well for many many years and modern educators and modern parents are frightened of frightening their kids. And to me, the whole point of fairy tales is to frighten the kids because at the end, it ends up with happy endings normally and the kids come out having gone through these nightmare situations, these terrifying things, and they come out, ah, oh, they made it. And it's supposed to be an exercise for life for all the dangers that are going to be confronting them, all the complicated situations. You take that away from a kid and you end up with kids who aren't prepared for life. Mm. And to me, that is what fairy tales have always been about. They are about danger and fearful situations. Wow. That's a great point. Yeah. And I just want to say the uh, <laughs> Wait, separately. Can I read Waylon's reaction? Can I? Sure, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Waylon's reaction. He liked it but didn't get the ending. Love the punch and judy parts at the point he said at that point he said to me. I'm actually enjoying this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the other thing that Waylon uh, said that made me laugh is that when the Supreme Being is upset at the mess and tells them all, I want all this stuff picked up, he said, That's every dad, by the way. <laughs> That's so true. I forgot about that. He's like, I want all this mess picked up and nothing could be left behind. And blah, blah, yeah. yeah. So uh, final thoughts from you uh, and Scott on this film? Scott, you go. <laughs> I love this movie, and I'm so glad that we did it because I haven't seen it in years. And it brought back so many memories from when I was a kid and just enjoyed the hell out of it. That's great. Unfortunately, I did just... I wasn't, I wasn't as appalled by it as I was as a young child, 
but I just, I really don't like this movie, but I really love Terry Gilliam films. I really do. And for some reason, this particular film is just not as interesting. I feel like people are like throwing babies out their window right now for like the four people that listen to the show are like, what the fuck is she talking about? Is she like high right now? I just, I don't know. There's just something about it that I, I don't watching it as an adult. I'm like, uh, I didn't get the fairy tale aspect about it. I didn't get any of that. I just, I was bored a lot or just really upset from getting flashbacks from my childhood. <laughs> okay. Uh, me, I fucking love this movie. Uh, I'll always love this movie. I'll watch this movie anytime it's on. I think it's fucking great. Although I'm glad that we didn't get the sequel because it might have been problematic. Well, I guess that about wraps it up on what we think about Time Bandits. I just wanted to say thanks to Gina for being a great sport. We've had a great time with her. Aww. Yes, yes, I'd like to say, Gina, it was a real treat being able to do this with you. It was so much fun. And I know that once this is out, I will be out of my position here at the Cinephilic Lounge to get rid of that asshole. It's no. funny when merry, merry men no. punch poor old widows. Not at all, because I already know, and I didn't have to even like listen to this, I already know that I've only probably just used two words to describe this whole movie for the past eight hours we've been talking about it. So I want to apologize ahead of time. And also no. to the both of you, but... No, that's, no, that's, no. That's no. very kind of you to Thank even you say so that. much, honey. It was such a great treat. Thank you so oh, much. It was so you. much fun. Thank I'm you so for glad having you agreed me. To do this. It's so cool. Thank you so much. So... Where can people find you on social media? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not on social media. I gave up Why? social media many months ago. I was too much cat drama. I don't know. I couldn't do it. So I'm not on social media anymore. Oh. And what else? Yeah, that's it. I'm just a normal mom. Um, I'm just really proud of myself. I didn't talk about cats or the real housewives <laughs> of New York City the entire time. Up until now, though, I had to mention it. Thank my, my two addictions. Oh, boy. But thank you so much. Oh, thank you. You guys are so cool. Well, thank you. Oh, and you know what? I hear the music, so I guess you know what that means. Yes, yes. Well, looks like that's all the time we have. Hey, want to join the conversation? Come visit us at our website, thecinephiliaclounge.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, where we're the Cinephiliac Lounge. Subscribe on YouTube. You can also hear us on Google Podcasts, iTunes, and Spotify. Also, if you like what you hear, please give us a rating. Well, thank you for joining us. Next time, we are going to discuss Joel and Ethan Cohen's Raising Arizona for its 35th anniversary. You won't want to miss it. Thank you so much. Thank you.